Please turn your Bibles to Second uh, Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four. And um, appreciate John's Sunday school lesson. If you weren't in Sunday school today, it's really helpful about having confidence in God's word to transform us, to both to save us and to sanctify us. That was a really a great reminder to to have our confidence in in the word of God. In 1819, Adoniram Judson, he's, he is um, first American foreign missionary. He was a missionary to, to Burma. He initially went, actually went to, um, was planning to go to India and end up going to Burma instead. Um, Adoniram Judson made some resolutions as he sat in his hut in, in Burma at the time when he became, began his public ministry among the Burmans. He wrote out what he called rules of holy living. These were resolutions that he knew he needed to commit to, to keep in order to be effective in his, in his ministry as a gospel missionary. And, and so he sat down and, and penned these, these things kind of to my purpose is to illustrate the earnestness with which he committed his, his life to, to following after the Lord for the sake of the gospel mission. And uh, most of these make sense. And I hope if you're the resolution-making kind of person that maybe these will encourage you to make these kind of resolutions. If, if, you're, if you don't see the beginning of the calendar year as anything special, then keep these as resolutions to carry on throughout your life. First of all, he said, I want to be diligent in secret prayer every morning and evening. Great reminder, Andrew, as you led us in that song, to, to commit ourselves to, to prayer and be thankful for the opportunity we have to pray. And Judson certainly knew that if anything was going to happen on the mission field, he had to be committed to seeking God's work through his labors. And so he was committed to that. Never to spend a moment in mere idleness. He knew that, that time was, was of the essence. He needed to, to make use of the time because we live in a day, a day that is evil and that, that people are dying and going to hell every day. And, and God has called us to a mission uh, third, to restrain natural appetites within the bounds of temperance and, and purity. He wanted to keep himself pure as a fit vessel for the, for the gospel of Christ. To suppress every emotion of anger and ill will, especially in his context. You understand he's, he's living in a foreign land and among a, a, a false religion, and, and he's certainly in the minority, the, the very, very much the minority. Uh, there's probably no one in Burma that, that were Burmese, that were believers at the time. God only knows that. He knew how important it was to, to maintain an attitude of grace toward the unbelievers that were around him. Uh, to undertake nothing from motives of ambition, selfish ambition, love of fame. Certainly he's famous. I think, I think most of us, when I mention his name, most of us are like, oh yeah, I've heard of Adoniram Judson. You know, I have a cousin named after him or something like that. Uh, we've heard of him. He's certainly famous, but he certainly didn't seek fame. He wanted his motives to be for the glory of God. Never do that, number six, which at the moment appears to be displeasing to God. He wanted to live in continual and constant obedience and sensitivity to obeying God. And then number seven, seek opportunities of making sacrifice for the good of others, um, providing that sacrifice is not inconsistent with some duty God has called him to. And then number eight, endeavor to rejoice in every loss and suffering incurred for Christ's sake and the Gospels, remembering that though like death they're not to be willfully incurred, we don't sign up for suffering or, or persecution, we don't go after that, we're not those kind of people, but 
If they are incurred for Christ's sake in the Gospels, they're not willfully incurred, yet like death they are a great gain. They bring glory to God. And so those were his resolutions there in his early years as, as a missionary in Burma. And I hope those will be an encouragement to you to recognize that sometimes there's a great cost involved. And I, call, I want to call this message the cost of gospel glory. As a matter of fact, it's on the slide. The cost of gospel glory. Are we, are we willing to be resolved to do what it takes to be the kind of messengers that are fit vessels dependent on the Lord living according to God's word because that's the most important thing for us, for God's glory? Are we willing to do that for the sake of the gospel? Uh, are we willing to undertake the cost of gospel glory? Judson, Judson was. It was very real to him in his experience. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is, is, um, is bounded by a couple of phrases I think are, are interesting that he says, um, since we have this, this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. That's in verse 1. In verse 16, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outward man is decaying. So this is a great chapter on gospel confidence, but, but we understand that confidence is not some kind of bravado, it's, it's a recognition that it's really going to be tough to be a gospel minister, a gospel proclaimer, whether it's a missionary or whether it's a, a person that's giving the gospel to their neighbor. It's going to incur some kind of cost. And so let me read chapter 4, and we're only going to focus in on a small segment of this today, but I think it's great to have the whole context in mind um, as we think about Judson's example and, and then about Paul's exhortation here to, to be committed to paying the cost for gospel glory. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's kind of the precursor to our message today. We can have confidence in the gospel of Christ because God, the same God who spoke light into existence, can, sp can speak gospel transformation into existence into the heart of the hearer who has, before that, been blinded by the God of this world. We're very thankful for that. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes so that the grace that is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What a great and encouraging passage to to be willing to bear the cost of gospel ministry for gospel glory. Great and encouraging passage. I hope this will be an encouragement to you today. You may have seen or noted, and you know, I had we had a friend share this on Facebook. This is the 66th anniversary of the death of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and their friends as they took the gospel to the Aka Indians and down in South America. And Elliot is most famous for his most famous quote is probably his what? No fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think that phrase goes right along with what we're thinking here. It's, it's no, you are no fool if you give what you cannot keep. That is security, uh, a great reputation to the, to the whole world, uh, safety, um, lack of persecution, but peace with your neighbors. You give what you cannot keep. You can't keep that anyway if you're full, fulfilling the gospel ministry of God, of Christ, and sharing the gospel. To gain what you cannot lose, which, which is, is, is a great deal, which we'll see throughout this, this passage. And so let's take a look at the text. We're, we're going to look in on, um, kind of hone in on seven verses 7 through, through 12. We're going to focus particularly on, on this section of this passage and understand that as messengers of the gospel, we want to be willing to pay the cost of the gospel because of the glory of God in the gospel. Let's look first of all at the realities of the cost involved. Um, the realities that we should expect to embrace as gospel proclaimers. And I know sometimes, I just want to say this, sometimes we think of this as a maybe more of a missions passage. I even started off with a couple of missionary examples. But there is cost involved in being a gospel proclaimer no matter where you're proclaiming the gospel. Whether it's on a foreign field where it's 99.9% uh, Muslim or Buddhist or animist, some foreign fields that we're familiar with in early missions, or whether it's in your own neighborhood where people are, they don't want to hear what you have to say, they think you're intolerant, uh, or in the workplace where they say, this isn't really part of our life here, we're, we're supposed to stick to the numbers or to the business, and, and when you start getting into personal things, you're going, you're going too far. Um, we all face a cost when it comes to being gospel proclaimers in our own context. I face that sometimes dealing, I, I work at Bob Jones University, mostly with professing Christians, but I face a cost there when I push on a person's profession of faith. When I say, listen, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ and are, are committed to living according to his word, then why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Is your profession of faith valid? Is it, is it real? And, and I often get, you know, you're not the one to judge my profession of faith. And I say, not ultimately, not ultimately, but immediately sometimes we are called to do that as, as pastors or ministers of the word or, or as local churches. We're called to do that. We all see a cost involved. And here we see in this first section that there are the realities of the cost involved are, are very clearly spelled out here. Um, the first one, verse 7, says here, it says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The first cost involved is that we bear a glorious message in inglorious vessels. We have to recognize as ministers of the gospel that, that it's not about us. Okay, if we're going to be sharing the gospel with people, it's not going to make us look good. Not typically. 
Not typically. As a matter of fact, we have to come to a place where we, we recognize that we really are earthen vessels. We really are jars of clay. We really, really are unattractive personally for a reason, so that the gospel can be actually magnified through us. Right? Clay pots contained everything from wealth to worthless things, foods and liquids. They were used to house the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were used to house the previous day's refuge. I mean, they were used for all kinds of things. It wasn't about the pot. It was about what it was containing, what it was holding, what it was used for. And so the focus on this superlative contrast between the glorious message of the gospel and the inglorious, unattractive, fragile means the messenger is for a purpose. It's to help us recognize that, that we are not special, but the gospel is very special. What do you think of yourself as a messenger? We like to think maybe a little sheen, a little shine, a little attention, a little fame will do us good. But God says no. The more you can just be focused on what you're proclaiming, what you are containing and proclaiming, the more glorious that gospel will come to be. What do people think of you? And I, and I, I look at this myself and I think, I need to be willing to be, be a bearer of the gospel. I need to not want to be the one who is getting the attention for proclaiming the gospel. We're earthen vessels. So part of that cost is recognizing we are just humble servants of living God as we bear the gospel. There's nothing special about us. And American Christianity has, has kind of set that aside, hasn't it? I mean, we, we like to exalt the people that are very productive or very successful. And so sometimes that gets in our mind and our heart and we think, I want to be productive and successful so that I can get attention. And God says, no, you want to be faithful so that I get the glory. And let's remember that. Part of the cost is making sure God gets the glory. It's the gospel that's important, not the vessel. We also see that we bear opposition to the message, both from outside and from, from inside. Paul gives a list of, of ways here in this passage that he has faced opposition, both from, from outside of himself and from within. And these are probably our experiences as we go out and share the gospel with people, as we talk to people about what God has done in our life, or as we go out on the mission field and we pray for our missionaries, we see this to be their experiences as well. He says we're afflicted in every way. This is, can be translated hard-pressed. Uh, we're, we're pressed in upon. Um, and if we lose heart, we would be crushed by this affliction. Unable to do anything if we don't lose heart. Afflicted. You like being afflicted. Does anyone like being afflicted? You guys are like, yeah. I like being afflicted. I like having pressure. I like having stress. Paul says the, 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 the experience of the gospel minister is going to be an experience of affliction. We're hard-pressed. He says we are as well perplexed perplexed, or it's translated at a loss in another translation, perhaps not always able to understand what is happening or why something is happening. Uh, and I, I think oftentimes we try to, we always ask this question, right, when something happens to us, why is this happening? We want to know exactly why, why we're facing this health crisis, why we're getting this response from our neighbor, uh, why we're having such difficulty on the mission field. Um, Bill talked about this missionary family who's dealing with COVID and has to fly away from their field. They have to be asking, you know, we're trying to be faithful ministers. Why is this going on? And, and we get perplexed in the midst of this. We're at a loss. 
We're not sure. And if we, if we give in to those, th- those thoughts, we would lose heart. We would despair and become useless. We're persecuted, Paul says. Persecuted in verse 9. Persecuted. That is, from without especially, rejected by men, but not forsaken, rejected by God. If we lose heart, we'll succumb to the thought that in the midst of human persecution, we are also uh, left alone by God. We're persecuted. And, and certainly we've talked about this, and as our culture is less and less commonly Christian or culturally Christian, we will face more and more opposition to the message that we proclaim, a very specific message that people are, are bound in their sin and they need to be regenerated by the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel of Christ. Or else they will face judgment by God and that in hell forever. It's not a message people like to hear today. People like to think, well, God's so gracious that you know, whatever way we're trying to get to him, he'll allow. And that's simply not the message of the gospel. And so when we proclaim an exclusive message, we face persecution by people. And it's very discouraging. The last, the last opposition, oppositional phrase that Paul mentioned here is not persecution, also struck down. We're struck down in verse, verse 9, the second half of, of verse 9. Struck down, laid low as with, with being taken, taken or beaten by a weapon. This is kind of the most extreme of these four statements. Um, Struck down, we are, we are beat down. And sometimes that happens literally. People have faced beatings, uh, have faced martyrdom, persecution and mar- up to the point of martyrdom for the sake of the gospel. Laid low. Paul talks about the reality of the cost involved. Have we experienced these reactions as a result of our ministry of the word? And I know as I study and preach this passage, I think I'm probably not experiencing these reactions enough in my own life. And that is an indication that I'm probably not as faithful as I should be. It's not that we go out seeking persecution or seeking controversy or conflict, but, but Paul tells us and Christ tells us that if we, if we live faithfully in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. We will face opposition. So if we're not facing it, maybe we're not being faithful. But on the other hand, if we are facing it, recognize that that is a mark of faithfulness and be encouraged by this. Be encouraged by the fact that, that those who are faithful to God will, will bear a cost, but it will be worth it. There will be gospel glory involved, and we'll get to that part of the message, the encouraging part of the message. Paul also says we suffer as Christ suffered, even the point of being delivered over to death. We not only bear opposition to the message from both without and within, we, we actually suffer as Christ suffered, even to the point sometimes of being delivered over to death, he says that in verses 10 through 12. Caring about in our body the dying of Jesus. If we who live are constantly being delivered over to death. In verse 11, verse 12, so death works in us. You know, we're constantly brought face to face with the realities of eternity. And sometimes that's very practical as we face death because of faithful gospel witness. Sometimes it's potential as we think about what this might cause us. But it's always actual in a certain way that, that when we proclaim a message of, of, of sin and repentance and death, the death of Christ or the death of us eternally and the deliverance of that through the gospel of Christ, when we proclaim that message, we are proclaiming a message of both death and of life. And sometimes that will lead to our own death, but often it will lead to others' life. I love an account that, that I've probably shared before. I, I share this often. 
Um, Adoniram Judson uh, wanted to marry a young lady named Anne Hasseltine, and he was invited to lunch at her father's house. And, and while there, he got to, got to know her. He called her Nancy, who became, uh, soon to become his, his first wife. Uh, she delayed several days in, in giving any kind of interest in him. But finally, she wrote back to her parents and asked for their consent before she would consider uh, what we call today dating or courting Adoniram. Um, she had written in her journal during this time whether she would be able to commit herself entirely to God, quote, to be disposed of according to his pleasure. She decided, yes, I feel willing to be placed in this situation in which I can do the most good, though it were to carry the gospel to the distant benighted heathen. <clears throat> Soon after this, and, and as she was kind of open to this relationship, Adoniram sent a, a letter to her father, a very famous letter. He said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land, her subjugation to the hardships and suffering of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Quite a letter, right? Maybe you've heard that before, but I mean, it's like starts off pretty rough, ends up pretty glorious, but still tough. One of Hasseltine's, John Hasseltine, the father's friend said, I'd rather tie my daughter to a bedpost than have her go on such a hair-brained, hair-brained adventure. Um, and her father had misgivings, but, but he left the decision up to Anne and to God in that case. Always carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus um, for Paul, probably caring about them in his body, the dying of Jesus, was probably reference in relating to his experience of Christ. That his viewpoint of death is a picture of the gospel of life and death. Um, for Paul, it may have included more than that as he faced stoning and beatings and had to flee for his life, eventually was martyred for his faith. Um, the process of dying is something that is always in front of you when you're a faithful minister of the gospel of Christ. And again, we see that in areas where life is really at stake through martyrdom. But we see that even now when our, our way of life or our manner of life or our goals in life are sometimes sacrificed for the sake of faithful ministry. We have to let our dreams die. Our dreams of of a great family and prosperity, die for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes that's what it means to bear about in our life the dying of Christ. It may mean to give our life for the gospel of Christ. And I think here we have the hatred of men in opposition to the gospel directed against the messengers of the gospel. Paul talks about as well constantly being delivered over to death. And I think that's probably Paul's 
Paul's experience of his real prospect of dying at any point for his faithful proclamation. I think he's probably there, not just talking about maybe the general prospect of death, but the very specific instances where he might have faced death and persecution. And, and uh, I like... I like reading Romans 1.16 that someone even mentioned that this morning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and the salvation. Do I believe the Jew first and also to the Greek? Love that verse. I'm not ashamed, but, but Paul wrote that in the context of, of all of his experiences through the book of Acts where he faced great, a great deal of shame publicly and personally and privately. Paul faced a great deal of shame, but he said, ultimately, I'm not ashamed because the gospel is being proclaimed. And he says here so in verse 12, so death works in us. This is a common phrase for faithful believers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I was with you in, in, in what? Fear and in much trembling when Paul first brought the gospel to the Corinthians. He says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter says don't be surprised by a fiery trial. Is there something unusual is happening to you? you know, don't be surprised by it. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you actually are blessed, Peter says. We live in a day that we've lost sight of, of what was very clear to early Christians. That is, to follow Christ meant that we would certainly embrace suffering in this world. And, and again, I don't, I don't think we should be just like, man, I want suffering. I want it. You know, We should be thankful for why we don't always embrace suffering or face suffering because of the freedoms we've had and the culture that we live in and the, and the spread of the gospel. Those are good things. We want to be thankful for those things. But, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't lose sight of what was very clear to these people that if I faithfully proclaim the gospel, I will, I'll suffer for it. And, and I, let me just put this into a really clear context. I mean, we're, we're dealing with, we deal with COVID and, and there's, there's a lot of attention given to that and, and vaccinations and this is just a very practical example. And so people line up on one side or the other, and Christians line up on one side or the other, this, this issue, and sometimes we get so focused on, on this issue politically or, or medically or, or, or you know, constitutionally, okay? We get so focused on that that we miss the big picture that, that there are a lot of people in our, in our world, in our nation, that are very much afraid of dying. And the reason is, is because... This life is all they have, and it's all they know, and it's all they have confidence in. And, and, we, and we, we sometimes get focused on the fact that we want as much freedom as possible when really we are bound by, by the gospel of Christ to proclaim it to them. Okay? On both sides of this issue, and again, you, we have people in our congregation, you, you all have done a great job of not lining up on one side or the other, of having a lot of unity and peace. But let's make sure we step back sometimes and think, there are people that are afraid of dying. There are people that put all their hope, all their hope in what man can do medically. And if, if they'll, they'll go to every extent to do whatever man can do, we say at some point we have to recognize we're all going to die and we have to put our hope in what God has done through Christ. So let's be willing to, to speak the truth and have compassion, to love others more than we love ourselves. Sometimes this is why Christianity is termed a mile wide and an inch deep, right? We, get, we don't get people who uh, casually endure the threat of jail or beatings or death, and so, so we don't face some of that so that it makes things seem much easier to us to pursue the things of this world. 
the reality of the cost involved. Let's move on to the reasons God requires this kind of cost. Why does God put us in a place where if we faithfully proclaim the gospel, we're going to face difficulty and persecutions and, and distress and, and, and pressure? Why, did, why does God put us in this kind of position? Why? Why? Well, he, he tells us why. Verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? And I like, I like this, especially as translated in New American Standard. It's so clear, the grammar. These so that's, you see them? These are the reasons. So that the power, the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Why does God make us earthen vessels, weak vessels? Why? So that the surpassing greatness of his power will be displayed through us. The reasons God makes us weak, makes us unattractive, makes us chipped and broken. When we're weak and afflicted, then we can, we can allow a watching world to see what God does through our message, not what we do, because we're not attractive. He says you're afflicted but not crushed, right? People put pressure on Christians, and we put pressure on ourselves, and we, it should be crushing. It should cause us to despair, but we're not because God's at work in us. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. If we do lose heart and despair, we will become useless, but we do not. And if we do not, literally, if we're not totally at a loss, we see that God's at work to strengthen us. Think of those circumstances where you've thought, why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing this at this time? Think, well, God is allowing this because he's sovereign and in his providence he's chosen this to be the path of what is best for me and what is most useful for his glory. And if a watching world sees us have that kind of response, they see us perplexed but not despairing, it brings a great deal of glory to God in the truth of God's word, truth of God's sovereignty, the goodness of God. Persecuted but not forsaken. We might be forsaken by everyone in this world, but we're never forsaken by God, for he has promised to us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Old Bob Jones Sr. quote, you know, you and God make a majority in any community, right? Uh, if God is with us, who can be against us? It's true. Struck down and laid low, but not destroyed. Again, this is the most extreme one of those, those four. The confidence is in Christ, not destroyed because because even if we are bearing in our body the death of the Lord Jesus, we're fellowshipping with his death. Even if that is happening, we're still being faithful to proclaim the message of life that is in the gospel. A watching world sees our weaknesses, but they also see God's power being manifest in that weakness. It's, again, it's not that we go about saying, hey, this doesn't affect me. You know, I'm a superman or a wonder woman. No, a watching world sees us. They see us struggling. They see us beat down. They see us pressured. But they also see through that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ being displayed. So we can be very encouraged by that. And sometimes there is no brighter gospel light than when God's people, God's saints are experiencing darkness. And that light shines through our experience. Again, another reason is so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our sufferings. Verse 10 says that we carry about the dying of Christ so that the life of Jesus can be manifest. Verse 11, we're being delivered over to death so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, verse 12, but life works in you. One of the reasons is that we bear, we bear uh, persecution, we bear distress, we bear 
dying. We bear the prospect of dying so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our sufferings. How does this happen? Verse 16 gives us some clue about this later on in the chapter. We don't lose heart, though our outer man is decaying. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. The strengthening power of Christ strengthens us in the inner man, even when we're facing difficulty in our outer man. We experience that, and people see that in our life. We experience that personal, uh, uh, personally as well. Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We're able to enter into fellowship with Christ in a very special way when we're facing difficulty externally. It's a very special experience, Paul says, the fellowship of his sufferings. There's a divine explanation for everything we're going through. And I also believe this is in reference to the gospel being proclaimed, that even in the midst of that persecution and conflict and difficulty, the gospel is going out from our lips in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's changing lives. And so Jesus' life is manifested in our lives through our message. We see the realities of the cost involved. We see as well the reasons this cost is required so that Christ will be manifest, God will be glorified. Let's close just briefly the results of a cost-bearing ministry because we want to get to the positive aspect of this. The cost of gospel glory, right? What is, what is the prospect that, that encourages us, that infuses us to, to persevere? The results of a cost-bearing Ministry, how can we be willing to pay this cost? And the answer comes in, in these three statements here that Paul gives us. In verse 7, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And I want to simply say that God is glorified when we faithfully proclaim, proclaim the message of the gospel. God is glorified. God gets glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, and we like to say that before we eat a meal, right? Because we're thinking, I'm eating, I'm drinking, whatever I'm doing. Well, sometimes whatever you're doing is proclaiming the gospel and getting beat up for it and facing death because of it. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so as Christians, we have this mindset that, God, whatever you're taking me through, whatever you're putting me through, whatever opportunity I have, you're getting glory for it. And we can be encouraged by that. We want God to be glorified. What is the chief End of man, the Westminster Catechism says, to quote a Westminster Catechism in the Baptist Church, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Our chief end is to glorify God. And, and one of the main ways we do that, Paul says right here, is by being faithful proclaimers of the gospel. God is glorified. If we love God's glory more than we love our own life, we'll be willing to give up comforts and face conflict for his glory Paul loved this glory more than life. He says in verse 17, momentary light affliction is is what? It's producing for us. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And whatever we face here is very, very, very small compared to the eternal weight of glory we we gain by glorifying God and the eternal, eternal weight of glory we gain by being faithful to God. There's nothing like that well done good and faithful servant when we stand before the Lord. There'll be nothing like that, nothing at all. What a blessing that'll be. And I think that's why Elliot said, he's no fool and gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, God's glory and that well done. But it's not just God being glorified. It's not just spiritual or mystical, but others reap temporal and 
eternal good. Paul says in verse 12, death works in us, but life works in you. In verse 15, he says, all things are for your sakes. Now, Paul doesn't say that to say it's not for God's sake. It's already, he's already made that clear. It's for God's glory, but it's also for your sakes. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Paul was willing to endure his suffering because of the benefits it would bring to others and to potential brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and he's talking very practically here that, that as he proclaimed the gospel and as he suffered for it, people would come to faith in Jesus Christ. They then as well would be God glorifiers. They would go through the same school he'd been through and the same process he'd been through in, in pre- preparing and preaching the gospel of Christ to others and seeing them come to Christ. So others reap temporal and eternal good. We often pull back from suffering if we think we're going to lose something, right? We pull back from it if we think we're going to lose something. Dad always told me, nothing hurts worse than pain, right? Has your dad ever told you that, kids? Yeah. Your dad's told you that because his dad told him that, right? We, we shrink back from that, some suffering and pain, but, but we think, you know, if, I, if I'm really to be a, an on, quote-unquote, on-fire Christian, talking about the gospel of Christ, it's going to cost me might cost me my life, maybe not in the United States yet, but maybe. Certainly it might cost me my health, it may cost me money, opportunities, family, freedoms, perceptions, fame. I mean, I get a promotion, it might cost me all the things I'm living for. But, but think of what we will gain if we do go through the process of enduring suffering. Uh, the good of others now and eternally, Paul says. To the Philippians, he says, to depart is far better, but to remain in prison, remember he was in prison when he wrote this to them, is better for you. Paul's like, okay, I'm willing to suffer now because this is for your sakes. You're going to be hearing the gospel, spreading the gospel, learning the gospel, and living the gospel for God's glory. Think of what we may, may gain in comparison to what we may lose. Others reap temporal and eternal good. And finally, we live... We have resurrection life to look forward to. Ultimately, if everything goes south, if everything goes as bad as it can possibly go, and we're killed for our profession of faith and proclamation of the gospel, ultimately, what's the big deal? We have resurrection life to look forward to. I think Paul really brings it home here. He says, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak, knowing he who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us also. If we really believe in the gospel, message and then we'll speak it regardless of what comes because if we are killed god who raised jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead also it's that simple okay it's that simple we have resurrection life to look forward to paul knew what it was like to be beaten oppressed in prison opposed shamed he knew how painful it was he knew how shameful it was but he also knew it was temporary and that like christ he would be raised from the dead as christ was raised from the dead How do we really preach the gospel that promises the resurrection and then live our lives trying to avoid death and resurrection? Puts everything off as long as possible. Paul knew the message assured him of victory over death and anything anyone could do was only temporal. And I need to be reminded of this, that at the center of my belief and my my proclamation of the gospel is this. It's a message that controls us from the penalty of sin, that is death, both physically, spiritually, and eternally. It, us, it, it, it delivers us from the power of, of sin, 
which brings his spiritual death, the, all the evidences of spiritual death. And it certainly, certainly delivers us from the ultimate eternal death through the resurrection of Christ. All of us would love to have Jesus come back so we don't have to die, right? We've talked about that as we've talked about Revelation, Pastor Stike says. But if he doesn't return, we will die. And we know that he's waiting for us on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, God will deliver us through the power of the life and the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, just an encouragement, I hope. We lose nothing to lay our clay pot lives down for the glorious message of Christ and the gospel. We lose nothing to, and we gain everything and others gain everything if we faithfully will proclaim the, the, the gospel message. And again, I want to, I want to bring this back to, to, to a very practical area. Let's think about the people that are around us. Let's think about, and I want to think about why I hesitate often to share the gospel with them. I hesitate often because of what it might cost me in, in that interaction with that person. And I need, to, I need to switch gears in my mind constantly, be reminded of this. I need to stop hesitating about what it might cost me, but, but, but I need to persevere through that because of what it might gain them and the glory it might gain for God. I hope that's an encouragement. Adoniram Justin, just to end with his story, he, 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 um, he faithfully proclaimed the gospel. You know, it was six years before he had his first convert in Burma. What a discouraging time that have been. That would have been that would have been like the whole time that we've lived in Greenville. We've been living here for six and a half years now. And if I was here as a missionary and, and no one had come to Christ, I'd probably end up being somewhere else. But he persevered faithfully. He finally had his first convert. Two more came to Christ that, that year for a total of three. In the next three years, 18 more were baptized. Again, that's about nine, nine or ten years. Um, for the two years after that, no one was converted because there was war between Britain and, and, and Burma and some of their colonies. There's, there's war between some of the people that held interest in the, those areas. Um, Judson was imprisoned for, for 19 months from 1824 to 1825. Read an account. Um, there's a biography called To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. It's an awesome biography of Adoniram Judson. You, you read through this section and your heart just bleeds for their family. His wife had to bring him food in prison. And what a discouraging time it was. The next two years, four more were converted. Beginning in 1828 then, years later, through 1831, 350, over 350 were baptized. 217 the very next year. And the very next year after that, over 1,000 were baptized and added to the church. In 1840, the translation of the entire Bible was completed. So, so you can see his, his willingness at the very beginning to count the cost, to resolve, to be faithful, uh, bore fruit. But it was a lot of years in between, right? It wasn't like... Man, if I make these resolutions now, this year is going to be a year of fruitfulness, right? A year of jubilee or whatever. No, I mean, it was years before we saw the fruit that was born. But, but now the largest Christian group in Burma is the Burma Baptist Convention in our modern day. It owes its origins to Judson's efforts. Uh, Operation World estimated this group to have over 3,700 congregations with over 600,000 Baptist believers and and through their outreach, over two million professing believers. So what a what a what a fruit, time of fruit that that Adnarum's early years bore.
hope we'll be faithful to count the cost of the gospel for gospel glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for great attention of these folks, and, and you know I needed this message more than anyone. God, I pray.